everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. Today on the program, I talk to Matt Brunick, an American lawyer, blogger, policy analyst, commentator, and founder of the left-wing think tank, People's Policy Project. He was a blogger for the American think tank, Demos, covering politics and public policy, and has written on issues including income distribution, taxation, welfare, elections, and Scandinavian economic models. Also joining us is my co-host, Leslie Lee. Leslie Lee is a writer, critic, and broadcast journalist, and host of his own podcast, Struggle Session. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. And with that, please enjoy our conversation with Matt Brunick. Matt Brunick, hello. Hey, how are you? Good, you? I'm doing well. Great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. I don't know if you guys have met... Uh, IRL or online, Leslie no, Lee. Online, we've 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 chatted. Tweeted. Uh, yeah. Yes, but never uh, in person. But very nice to meet you, man. Nice to meet you, Leslie. You guys are both from, I mean, different places. But Matt is from the state of Texas. Oh. And Leslie is from Louisiana. Louisiana. There you go. We border so one another. Time in so. Texas. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. I just wanted to give you guys that to bond over. Right. And I'm I, I very. Didn't know, I'm, I'm. I'm sad. I didn't know you were from Texas, Matt. I. I gotta admit, you don't necessarily give off Southerner energy. I. I. I don't know if that's BSA. deliberate. If you're ashamed of your redneck past, as Ben Folds <laughs> uh, says in the song. But I don't want to blow up your spot. You know, if yeah, if, yeah. If you're trying no. to keep it undercover. I have to drop all the inflections and stuff and try to speak like a northerner to be taken seriously is that your like not to sound like a total terrible i don't know what the word is but is is this your like the accent you grew up with yeah i think so um you know i grew up in the dallas fort worth metroplex you know so if you're in a if you're in a city i don't know all cities are kind of similar on some in some respect i think it's more (laughs) once you get out into the rural areas that uh it really gets thick so yeah. Well, I got into a lot of trouble when I went after, what's her name? Comey Barrett? Coney Barrett? Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. I was listening to her and she, I thought she sounded like, kind of like from a, someone from Long Island. <laughs> and I jokingly said, like, this is cultural appropriation and it's not okay. And then I didn't know that there's this whole cool, like, New Orleans accent. And in fact, I got to get Adolf Reed back on the show to, to break it down for me. But people were so, they really, and then people were like, really, that's what you care about? I'm like, yes, it is so much more problematic than her pro-corporate, you know, <laughs> reactionary, uh, it pales in comparison to that. You know, those pale in comparison. People are like, oh my God, I can't believe this person. Anyway, it was fun. But uh, Matt, uh, wanted to love having you on and um, Love that you are, you know, the People's Policy Project is a great uh, organization. It's a great think tank. And it's unique because it's actually a crowdfunded, crowdsourced uh, think tank, which is rare and really important. In fact, before you guys created that, I didn't, I didn't realize how important that was. Like, because we're so used to a world where think tanks are funded by incredibly wealthy people or institutions or interests. Um, 
and before we get into the, the near tandem stuff and you know don't worry guys this is not a petty thing this is a bad policy but before we get into that how did you even realize that there was like a need to create a think tank that wasn't well, well what's the uh, you word? know i uh, I, I lost all my I lost all my jobs. Uh, well, so. th- well, it does kind of relate to the Nira thing, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, it's directly related yeah, to it. I didn't, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I lost uh, my job at, at Demos and then my job at the National Labor Relations Board. And, uh, you know, I thought I could make a go of it. And, uh, you know, it turned out to be the case. I can't make, like, a ton of money on the on the think tank. In fact, I make more on my podcast than the think tank. But it's enough to write, a, you know, I don't know, five or six nice papers a year and get them nicely designed and then just kind of keep in the the news and try to like influence i don't know news coverage and and the direction of bills and stuff like that you know it's enough to kind of get that off the ground so yeah it's, it's worked it's worked reasonably well and you're right i mean the other think tanks they get their money from primarily foundations uh very high net worth individuals or the Gulf states, uh, right. it's a pour a ton of money into the think tanks. And it's funny because I, I, it's one of the things I've had to like grapple with for a while. I mean, I think I've done a good job of getting taken seriously as a think tank. Like I get quoted all the time in newspapers and like members of Congress and stuff will reach out to me. But you do have people who occasionally are like, you're, this is a fake think tank. This is not, and I'm kind of like, what's a fake? Why is it fake? Right. What makes it fake? And it's like implicitly, it's like, well, it's fake because you're not getting money from the Gulf states or the Bill Gates Foundation. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I get money from real people. If anything, I'm the legitimate one, and yeah, they're, they're the all fake. fake. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and but and your podcast is the Brunics. That's right. Which is a great podcast, yeah. Um, which you co-host with your fellow Southerner, uh, fellow Texan partner. That's right, Liz yeah. Elizabeth Liz Brunig of the yeah. New York and Times. Yes. Um, so yeah, I wanted to have you on because I have a kind of, um, it's not a Neurotanon obsession. Uh, and it's not because she came up with a term for me. Do you guys want to know the term she came up for me? I or guess. with for me? It's, um, Dalton Socialist. So I went to this oh. school, it's a private school called Dalton and it is, deserves the ridicule that it will get for being a ritzy private school. Um. Is that but where Matt Iglesias went? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We were the same year, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you know him? And, and he, had long, he had hair like to hear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. We took Russian fiction together. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you had um, Russian fiction? Russian literature. Yeah. Russian literature. I think it was at it's your an elective. High, at your high school? Yeah. I was saying, ridicule <laughs> it if you must. I understand. I did the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I taught there. But... Um, it's funny, it's like, so she uses this word, I, either she created it or someone else did and she uses it. And it's obviously about me, not to sound whatever, because long story short, Iglesias is not someone she would call a socialist. And I don't know who else, any lefties, any other lefties who went there, uh, who she would want to be hostile towards at least. Right. Um, Dean Wareham of the band Luna, who's a Bernie fan, did go there, but don't think that's who she's talking about. So, um, but it... The thing with the, you're like a, a perfect, and again, I don't want you to feel tanned and objectified. I've had on Matt to talk about um, healthcare. I've asked him about the uh, HEROES Act, uh, many things, minimum wage stuff. But what, there's something about the way that obviously her tweets about Republicans don't matter. 
And obviously, as my like fellow leftists, you know, point out, her tweets are not the issue. It's her policies, right? But to me, the reason that the Twitter, her Twitter presence does matter, Tandon's Twitter presence, because, and I was like, I've been trying to think of it and I've been talking to editors and I can't like, I have a bit of a neuro block in my head, but it's because I think she, in real life, she weaponizes identity politics and lived experience, right? To, Mm -hmm. she cites the fact that she grew up on Section 8 housing, she was on food stamps, and then what does she push? She pushes austerity. So she, she cites her background benefiting from these programs. And I don't mean that in a, I'm not at all like, it's good. People should be benefiting from these programs. My only thing is I'd you know, like them to be less uh, means tested. But th- there's no criticism for that. It's The criticism I have is that she, she benefited from these things and then wants to turn around and deprive others of right, those yeah. things, right? Um, she cites her being, you know, her, her parents are hardworking and her mother was from India and she's a woman of color. It's like, that's great. And you also cozy up to Netanyahu, want to steal the oil from Libya. Um, again, just a lot of things that are, that she uses identity and lived experience to cover for. And I think, and I'm going to ask you to elaborate on those things, but the, the Twitter thing that kills me is it's like she condemns and, you know, laments the online toxicity that exists. And you are one of the people uh, she accused of doing that. Demands that every single person, that, that Sanders, like, disavow, repudiate, condemn any and every random online person who either likes him or claims to like him. And then at the same time, she elevates people, hangs out with people in real life, who say absolutely like misogynist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic things. And people are like, who cares? It's her tweets. I'm like, yeah, of course it's her tweets. But there is something to her tweets that that's significant. And then with you, I was like, oh, this is where it comes full circle, right? Because, and I, I'm going to ask you about this, but you and Tandon and Joan Walsh got into a policy fight. And that was resolved... Uh, basically they got you fired and cited your online talk, alleged online toxic behavior. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really what it is. It's like her Twitter presence is the same thing as her real life presence, which is weaponizing identity politics, lived experience, and on Twitter, civility politics to actually push to like, to try to neuter the left. And when you were fired from Demos, that was like kind of an example of what she tried to do. Anyway, that's sorry. I didn't. That was me working stuff out okay. with you and Leslie here. But can you share that ex- the what happened between you or among you and uh, Walsh and Tandon? Yeah, you know. So in the 2015 primary, I actually didn't. I actually didn't know who Nera Tandon was before that point. But she was getting. She got pretty active on Twitter at that point. I kind of wonder if she was uh, how active she was before then, because I feel like I would have noticed her. But she really got going then. And, you know, it was Bernie versus Hillary. Things were really heating up. And uh, she, she just started tweeting at me uh, for a while. And then I clicked on her name and I was like, oh, it's an important person. I should follow her. Um, and, and we would kind of go back and forth for a while. And one of the big trolls I used to <laughs> do on her is um, every time she would tweet something about, you know, Hillary Clinton saying, you know, she's, she's super progressive and she takes no progressive backseat to Bernie Sanders. I would always say this is why we can't nominate Hillary because she's too progressive. She can't right. win the general election. 
and she would this would this would really get her wound up and i don't know over time i would just kind of agitate you know like that nothing ugly just just sort of screwing around you know like you do online um and then at one and then what happened was when i got fired is joan walsh wrote a piece at the nation that was basically like I could never support Bernie Sanders because all his supporters are, you know, uh, misogynist, uh, racist Bernie bros. Like, it's one of those pieces. And Hillary Clinton is the candidate of women and people of color. And I replied to Joan, you know that that it's really about age. That if you, you know, young women are for Bernie and, and older women are for Hillary and young people of color are for Bernie. And, all, and you know, we see this in the polls. And, like, it, it turns out that there are more older voters than younger <laughs> voters. So, like, overall, but, like, you know, I was sort of pushing back on that. And I kind of got tangled up with Joan about it. And then Nira comes into the thread. So Nira's not, you know what I'm saying? I'm not mm -hmm. tweeting at Nira Dan. And she comes into the thread and starts, you know, getting mad at me for, you know, criticizing Joan, I guess. And then uh, then we have the run-in where I'm like, well, I, you know, you worked on welfare reform. Hillary Clinton worked on welfare reform. That was uh, no good for me. And then, like you said, she's done this thing, and she's doing it now even in her bid for trying to get through this OMB nomination where she tries to use the fact that she was on benefits as a kid as a kind of identity shield to say you can't criticize me for what I've done in politics. Very similar to, you know, how someone might say, well, how, you know, I'm uh, speaking as a woman, you can't, you know, this or that, or speaking at, but in this case, it's speaking as someone who received AFDC. You know? right. <laughs> like it's a really niche, uh, weird identity to like, you know, like, well, the, of course, the, the Section 8 community, and we all have very similar opinions and experiences. And, you know, it's like, it's a really weird thing to kind of, pitch that way but well, i said yeah, yeah. go ahead no, no, keep going I, I tweeted back you know uh, well scumbag nira uses welfare when she needs as it takes it away from others when they need it and uh they decided to really fixate on like scumbag like oh well, nah, he's gone over the line he used the word scumbag um which of course uh, i don't know if people are real plugged in the internet know that was a reference to scumbag steve meme which is which was a big thing at the time um so it wasn't even like i was calling her a scumbag even if i was that's a pretty yeah. low level taunt like yeah. um yeah. yeah and then uh, i don't know the one way or another demos fired me put out a press release saying i'm you know uh just a horrible abuser online i guess um and, and, and this was not that this matter i'm just joan walsh had called you a troll before <laughs> after you said this it doesn't matter because I'm before, not just Yeah, before. Yeah, she it, was yeah. calling me a troll, and that's why Nira jumped in. I don't remember the full thread, but Nira basically was like, you know, I don't in solidarity with Joan against Matt Brunig, the troll, who trolls me also kind of thing, right. you know? So. And Which, then, I mean, I did, but not in a... In a, you know, like I said, like making fun of like, well, if she's so progressive, then right. I guess she can... You know, like shit like that. In a way that you would have with a straight white man. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Well, she mean, didn't accuse me. I don't think she's accused me of, uh, of, of you know, going against her as a woman, a woman of color. Oh, okay. Thankfully, um, yeah. I, I don't remember her ever trying That's to pull a lot that. That's self-restraint uh, for her because yeah, she yeah. weaponizes that quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and so that was a fight, and then that turned into a whole thing, right? Where I, I mean, just going back a little bit when you said the, the niche thing, I mean, it wouldn't make sense if you were saying I, you know, Section Eight housing. There's a logic and like moral like 
a morality and sense of justice to saying, I grew up under these conditions, and because of that, that's informed me and my perspective, and that's why I'm going to fight for people like that. People, you know, who, like my mom. But it is extremely sordid to use that and then say, you know, entitlements are on the table. Yeah. Uh, we yeah, no, it's it's, it's weird, security. and and but you you do also see that in other groups. Like they oh, yeah. they want to put they'll take someone who has the relevant identity to really bring down the sword, because then they can kind of say, well, I grew up in this yeah. or that, or I I've experienced racism or whatever, and then they do something that uh, makes racism worse, or you know is is right. bad for the economic prospects of people of color, or something like that. But you know, like that's something they do in all on all the groups it seems like uh, it's, a, it's a common strategy but yeah but yeah it's weird it's it's a weird thing when someone is pointing out hey you cut this for you to be like how dare you i used to be on it <laughs> it's like Whoa. yeah exactly <laughs> it's like why you it makes you a sellout like yes. that like she can call me i mean what she's saying to me is i'm kind of like a class trader which i will take you know any day and i'm again not to make this about biography but it's like if you're gonna point to your biography i mean this is like the neoliberal version of someone like um the ben carson story right where he just like yes. overtly says i made it and so can these people like yeah. the tandon argument doesn't go that far because that's like very right wing like overtly right wing but her thing their thing is like the everyone has a chance and she even uses the word grit like with her mom yeah no i i think uh the right wing line is to say this experience informs the reason why I want to get rid of it in her case i'm not even sure I would say that tandon she's an operator she wants to be in mainstream democratic politics. The reason she worked on welfare reform is because she thought it would help her in her career in mainstream democratic politics. The same reason why in two thousand and ten she came out for cutting medicare medicaid and uh, social security. Right. I wouldn't say like, I, I, like it's almost like <laughs> she's not the kind of creature who you can be like, what's, what's her real views? It's like right. her, she's, she likes to be in the democratic party. <laughs> yeah. Like that, those are her views. She likes her career in politics. Um, but yeah, but so she just kind of uses it as a shield as necessary when having a career in politics means going with the flow on something that actually is counter to what would have benefited her uh as a kid um right. but you make a good point i mean the ben carson point this is the pro one of the early problems i kind of identify because because when you're coming up you know as a, as a i don't know teenager and you're getting interested in left politics you know you you can get sucked into like different modes of doing it and one mode of doing it is very kind of like well what's my experience and what does that tell me about this or that and it occurred to me as as someone who could maybe say hey, I came from the working class. Look at my single mom who worked at the JCPenney you know, right. or whatever. That, well, a lot of people who come from that position, if they find themselves, if they find success, which they need to find in order to be in a position where they can opine, like you don't get in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times if you grew up poor and then stayed poor. Like that doesn't happen. It's only if you've gone right. up the ladder. But then that experience, that's not a good experience for you to then talk about, like, because that is a rare experience. And if you right. look through the whole world through that lens, you're going to get very distorted views about what's possible and what's common. And, you know, and you're probably not likely to 
reflect enough on your own situation and say, damn, this was really lucky, you know, like, so I don't know. Right. I just, I, I don't find people with that background in particular who have also succeeded. Those are oftentimes the worst people who have the worst <laughs> politics because right. of that experience, you know? Yeah. Especially when, I mean, overtly conservative right wing thing, it's like, it's, it's like kind of overtly sadistic and punishing, right? It's like I made it and these people, they think that they're going to get by, they want handouts. Like, I made it through hard work. And with, with the like neoliberal, like meritocracy, technocracy class, it's like, if you give people a fair shot, like there is, you know, it's, it's all about like making it so that one out of 10, like black families can make it just like one out of 10 white families can make it as opposed to one out of 20 or whatever, you know, I'm grabbing these numbers out of thin air, but yeah, a social mobility story. Yeah. We'll 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 uh, re we'll rethrow those dice every ten years, and who gets to be very poor and who gets to be very rich. And it's like, well, I'd rather just squeeze the differences as right. opposed to you know move people around the the hierarchy. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think and I think I think people just they have a bad sense of their own story um, and. And then their politics, you can kind of get into this little loop where you think you've done really well and you're very proud of yourself and what you've succeeded at. That kind of pushes you towards, hey, if I can do it, then anyone could do it. And then that, and that kind of moves you to the right. And then as you, as you get more to the right, you then rethink your own experience through the lens of your right-wing politics. Right. And then you start, your story gets retold in your own head and you start shaving off things. Like, I mean, I think about in my own situation, obviously I've been very successful, I guess, you know, uh, as far as these things go. But there's so many moments where it's like, this could have easily gone one way or another. Right. Like, I mean, one is when I was in high school, I got, I scored on the top... I don't know what it was, like 0.3% on the PSAT, and that, that gets you national merit uh, like uh, designation, uh, which is yeah. why I got uh, you know a, f a full-ride scholarship at the University of Oklahoma. But like the difference between the, like being in the top 0.3% and being in the top 0.4%, which would not get you uh, that, is like one or two questions. And I for sure guessed on one or two questions, right. you know, like <laughs> I, that I probably got right, just, just luck of the draw, you know. So, right. I mean, yeah. This is, I mean, there's a like uh, a humility that goes with that, right? That's not like by the sheer grit. It's my determination, you know. And the, the American dream means that I get a chance at this. You know, it's like the the Hamilton musical or Hillary Clinton's like tested slogans. You know, it's all about just making it more. Not leveling the play well, yeah, leveling. I guess the playing field. It's not an egalitarian uh, mission. It's a just a meritocracy one. Yeah, it's about making um, making society fair in the sense that everyone winds up in the part of the hierarchy they're supposed to be on, as opposed right. to saying this hierarchy is a mess. Let's level it as much right. as we can. Um, and I mean, it's still important, even when it's leveled, to at least try to make sure the positions are open to everyone and, right. and that kind of, but like in our society as it exists right now, it's the gap between the top and the bottom is so, is these the bigger issue than, you know, who manages to get the wall street job or who manages to get the big law job or, you know, whatever right. the paths are like that. That's just, 
it's just swamped by the overall inequality. Yeah. Um, Leslie, do you have any? I have, I have a bunch more questions, but just wanted to. Yeah, it's just, uh, and you know, it doesn't matter what your background is because if you're a poor person who makes it to a level, <clears throat> a level where you can talk to near attendant and you have a different opinion than those in power, you're just ignored or not listened to anyway. So like, like it doesn't matter. And if you're a rich person who's has never had to suffer, but you uh, espouse whatever the liberal status quo is, then of course your your experience and your lived experience is you know extremely extremely important and worth taking seriously. Yeah, I've written before about this sort of double bind, which is a sort of related to what Leslie's saying, that if you kind of think about people as only being able to talk about issues if they have some kind of authentic connection to them based on their background and experience, when it comes to poor people, you, you, they do wind up in a situation where if you grow up poor or lower class or working class and you stay there, of course, you don't get any traction on anything. I don't know, maybe these days you could get a podcast going or something like that, but certainly in the like elite media, right? If you grow up there and you stay there, you don't, you, you're just not in a position to intervene in the discourse. If you grow up there and you advance, then one thing they'll do, if you do try to play that game, which I've always just, just said I'm not playing the game, <clears throat> is they'll say, well, okay, yeah, when you were a kid, but look at you now. Like, you, you know, like, they'll say, well, you're not poor now, so who, who do you speak for now? And it's like, right. well, yeah, you, uh, you know, so who can speak for them then? They can't speak for themselves because if they uh, pitch the Wall Street Journal, it, <laughs> that doesn't get uh, <laughs> published. I can't speak for them because even though I, I have some connection through my childhood, I don't really have a connection now. I mean, my income's quite high. So who? Who then? It's like, well, nobody. You know, like the, the schema doesn't work for economic position, I guess, in the same way that it might work for other groups. Because, of course, you have highly educated and highly paid women and highly educated and highly paid black people and trans people and whatever. But if you're highly educated and highly paid, you can't be poor. <laughs> you can't, yes. you know. Like so. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just like a question of, yeah, are you using your lived experience to fight for the people who've come from that community? Or are you using it to fight against them? And I guess it's almost like there's a refreshing honesty and directness about the Ben Carson position because it's so overt, right? Like, no, it's not, it's, there's nothing subtle. There's nothing like undercover. He's like, I survived this community because handouts are bad which is why we have to dismantle the welfare state and not give people handouts. And if we give people handouts, that's what keeps them trapped in poverty. But like the tandem position is not that, but it's also like, you know, like look at, okay, obviously it's just a question of like 10 minutes. If I haven't mentioned Bernie Sanders, just wait 10 minutes more and I will. But like the way that he grounds his politics and his lived experience, right? So like the, his family being wiped down in the Holocaust, I mean, that's actually a really pertinent example because we were talking about the Michael Che joke before, but like, yeah, you have some Jews grounding their, uh, using the experience of the Holocaust to justify what I would describe as very, uh, you know, as like basically as ethnic cleansing. And you don't, have to you don't have to equate it with the Holocaust to see that that's what the founding of Israel was. And then you have people who use that to say, that's why I, you know, it's this, these experiences 
um, make me committed to not allowing for more oppression and let's say ethnic cleansing. Um, and so it's always a question of just like who gets to wear that label and, and, you know, elevate that mantle. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what is scary about, I, I think identity politics are good. I think what's, it's what's scary about the weaponization of identity politics. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can use uh, background narratives to kind of go in any direction you want, right. really. So if you're trying to defer to what people's opinions are based on whether they can present some kind of background narrative, you can't, you could go really any which way. I mean, like you mentioned with the Holocaust, obviously you can have someone who's just really strongly in favor of... Um, you know, social justice right. and oppressed peoples and especially people oppressed based on their religion or ethnicity. And like, right. you could go that route or you could, you know, you could go another route and say, well, look, you know, um, you know, I mean, everyone in who's, who's pro, uh, I don't put this delicately, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the people who are some of the more, um, strongest apologists of what uh, Israel uh, gets up to, uh, they often dip into the exact same um, historical narratives and backgrounds and say that's why it's so right. important that uh, we have a strong muscular uh, state that uh, is a Jewish uh, ethno yeah. state and all the rest of it. So you, c you, know, you could go anywhere with it, really. Right. It's just that one side always gets, like, whichever side is more funded or more powerful gets to claim that they really represent the real ones. Right. Um, and what what else do you have any other insights into what needs to be done? Like a anything that you hear from the Biden administration that you want to call out for being particularly like dishonest? Because I, I think something that happens a lot is that people who are on the left, like we're not, you know, we're not experts. Like, I don't know. It sounds it's we're susceptible, I think, sometimes to the argument that like this is a great idea, but it's just not doable. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I don't know. You know, it's kind of funny to try to figure out what is even what is Biden even up to. Like, it's so quiet. Um, they're spending Except a lot bombing of Syria, apparently. Oh yeah, no, on the foreign policy and on immigration and th that stuff is kicking off for sure. And it's been a total disappointment. I mean, I guess depending on what or you expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, it turns out that these sort of concerns on the border were Trump specific, uh, not policy specific among Democrats. Um, same thing with certain foreign policy uh, things, but that's, I don't know, I kind of figured that for a long time. And the areas that I work on, which are economic uh, policy and, you know, benefits and, uh, you know, I don't know, minimum wage and labor and like all that kind of stuff. It's just, we just kind of waiting and seeing on this COVID bill. I don't know if you guys saw today, you may have been on the show uh, when it happened, but the parliamentarian yes. of uh, the Senate, yeah, said no. Okay, what, what is that? The par I, I have to admit, I don't know. What is the parliamentarian of the Senate? Uh, it's a, it's like a job. You could get it <laughs> if they I, wanted to hire Leslie you. and I apply? We should yeah, have a yeah, yeah. I don't know what kind of background they would re require, it's but it's not elected or anything like that. It's um, some nerd who read Robert Rules of Order. Right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. ostensibly is supposed to be deciding on certain 
parliamentary uh, procedures and whatnot. yeah you know is, is this point of order in in uh timely or you know, some right. shit like that but it comes most of the time it's whatever but it becomes important in this very narrow case where to pass the reconciliation bill which is like a once a year kind of thing where you can get a bill done with 51 votes which is weird like why can't they all pass with 51 votes but that's how it is you you can cram it through this reconciliation bill, um, but there's a requirement that it pass something called the Bird Rule, and the the relevant part of that is um, whatever you're putting in this bill, it needs to change uh, government spending or government revenue, which the minimum wage actually does because if you change the wages, it has actually quite a lot of cascading effects on revenue. I mean, for example, uh, if someone uh, makes higher wages, they pay higher tax and uh, they mm -hmm. also receive less benefits, you know? So that part is not a problem, but there's a caveat to that, which is that the revenue and spending that you do through your policy change, it can't just be quote, merely incidental to the non-budgetary aspects of the provision or something like that. And so that, that becomes a question, which is, are these budgetary impacts of the minimum wage, which are tens of billions of dollars, are they merely incidental to an, a non-budgetary thing, which is changing the minimum wage? And there's like, wh what is this? This is a, uh, is this science? What are we doing here? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like you could, anyone could say yeah or no. I mean, right. you know, it's, it's bullshit ultimately. Um, yeah. And they've it's let like a lot the of law on people. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and it's like, but there's like, there's no, there's not like a case law on it or something like at least with some of the vague oh, right, aspects the lawyer, okay, yeah. of the vague aspects of law you have you know, a hundred cases, you know, that judges have decided you can kind of look at those and kind of figure out where the line is here. It's just like one off things that they occasionally throw out, but they've done some weird ones over the years. So the, the weirdest one, which people keep pointing out is, um, I think three years ago they did one where the Republicans wanted to open up drilling in the Alaska, um, national wildlife refuge to like to oil and gas drilling. And they let that go through because it does increase government revenue um, because that's a federal land and you can lease it out and make money. But it's like, how's that not merely incidental to the budgetary part? And if it's not, how, how is the minimum wage merely incidental? Like it's either they're both, they're both on one side of the line or the other. Um, right. But yeah, that's how it's turned out. So yeah. The, and, and I, the, yeah oh, and kind of the key takeaway about this is it actually doesn't matter uh the vice president can just overrule them uh kamala harris could just overrule this person but the biden administration has said they won't do that because reasons yeah no uh they could she could overrule it and it's like guess what kamala harris was the attorney general of california i think she's probably more qualified on like uh who can interpret what's what laws mean than the parliamentarian you know what i mean like it's not the parliamentarian doesn't have any special insight into what the words merely incidental mean that kamala doesn't also have and she probably has more because she's an actual experienced lawyer um so there's no like there's no like well kamala's not an expert on this kind of thing it's just a right. decision that they're making they also could fire the parliamentarian which the republicans did in 2001 when they weren't getting the answers that they wanted so who is this person i want to know who they are what's what's the, what's their name i don't know who the yeah, current one what is what sign are um, they were they born in 
I don't Mercury, know. Mercury, whatever those things it's, are. It's uh, Elizabeth McDonough, mm. who, uh, she's been there since 2012. Sounds um, like there may be time to, re- Leslie, you want to go for her or you want me to? <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead. I'll go ahead and do it, yeah. But, um, I know the reason I brought up the law is because, you know, Samuel Moyne has been on the show a few times and we had, I had him on when our BG died and he was saying, you know, that like, you know, judges pretend that they're not doing politics through the law. Like they pretend that they're just, you know, what is it like calling, uh, strikes and balls or whatever. Right. Um, my words, not his, but, and, and. It's the same thing with politics, right? I mean, especially Demo- Democrats love pretending that their their hands are tied, that they can't do anything about it that they'd love to. But if they wanted to, they could. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. They uh, they like to have these little pressure valves where they can kind of go, oh, well, the parliamentarian said this, or right. we can't do that because of the filibuster. Because the filibuster is another one. And I pointed this out um, back in 2008 or 2009 when I was like a nobody, but I was still fight, fighting the war, the, the posting wars, you know, is they tried to defend the fact that the Democrats kind of pursued a pretty weak agenda under Obama, even though they had like 59 votes in the Senate, like they had a pretty solid situation there. And it was very weak. And people say, well, there's a filibuster, there's a filibuster. And of course, you say, well, you can get rid of that literally at any time. It's not even a thing where like, well, you could have gotten rid of it at the beginning of the session, but now we're stuck with it. You can get rid of it at any time. And you can also get rid of it just for that bill if you want to. And the weird thing was is that although they didn't do that to make the Affordable Care Act better, they didn't do that to make the stimulus better. About a year or two later, when the Republicans were filibustering all the judicial nominees, they got rid of the filibuster so they could get judicial nominees in. So it was like, right. see, you could have done this the whole time. And, and even today, it still kind of survives. And there's this like weird, bizarro world where people now realize, wait, we can actually get judges in without the filibuster. But then still go, well, the filibuster, what can we do about that? And it's like, well, we the thing that lets you do the you just do that um but you know i don't know people like uh external constraints that they can point to instead of having to just say you know i don't think this is a good idea or or whatever so that's i mean i think that's what the the whole bernie hillary thing revealed right it was people who pretended that they would have gotten on board with this of course if these were viable positions we would do it i'd be backing it but then when that person came out and was um they didn't and so that you know like the libs and centrists can hide behind the oh i would love that it just won't work and yeah yeah yeah, so long yeah yeah they want to because they are kind of you know they don't want to and this was goes all the way back to the kind of messing with the nira in 2015 they don't for whatever reason, unlike Joe, who kind of was relished yeah. in being like a moderate who just yeah, like, yeah, totally. I'm just not for that stuff. There are a lot of people who work in the moderate part of the Democratic Party who, for whatever reason, are just very insecure about that and are very much like, I don't know. I'm a I'm a left. I'm a lefty. I'm yeah. I like I don't, I'm to the I'm left not. of Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so you can kind of that was part of the freak out. Like you pointed out, I think that was part of the freak out with Bernie was well, here you go. Here's what. Here's right. the one you say. You say you're here. Um, so here's the guy that you could do it. Um, right. So. So let's go. Right. Do you 
do you, how much of the online like discourse do you think, I mean, you, you lost your job, uh, but how much of the online discourse and the narrative about the toxic Bernie bros, I mean, it was definitely picked up and perpetuated by people, John Walsh, The Nation, Joy Ann Reed, MSNBC. How much do you think that shaped versus just reflected um, kind of politics? Um, I don't know that it really shaped much of anything. I think it was just a nice kind of convenient way to give a non-policy reason for why they don't like Bernie, right? So it kind of goes back to the to the other thing, right? They, they don't want to have to say, no, I just don't like national health insurance or I just don't like, uh, you know, 15 minimum wage or I don't like whatever it might be, free college or, you know, go on down yeah. the list. They want to be able to say, yeah, I'm kind of there, but it's not practical. He can't win or maybe he could. But you know what? I don't like other aspects of it. Yeah. I don't like his you know, white male toxic uh, bro followers right. or whatever. That seemed to be opportunistic. And then there also seemed to be just, I don't know, like, you know how it goes when elections get going, things heat up and there are people, mostly just kind of anonymous people that you just don't really have any attachment to who kind of get fired up. And depending on which side you are on in the election, that also determines what kind of uh, assholes you get right. in your mentions. Of course, right? Right. So like I got tons. I mean, if you get it too, I've seen you uh, <laughs> point this out, like tons of vicious abuse from Hillary people. Yeah. Uh, or, and then T Tandon's got her own weird ass crew on there. <laughs> who's like, Hi, <laughs> yeah, reg wag, and, so and they weird. they went wild today. I don't know if you saw that with no, uh, the the, the oh, Washington with that Post reporter. They, yeah, like, were like oh, making yeah. like Asian racist jokes about. Yeah, yeah, well, it it got pretty bad. Uh, they called her it. Uncle Tom. They called her a coon, actually. Yeah, which yeah. makes no <laughs> sense. That's and, no, Leslie. They're actually post racial. <laughs> you don't you don't get to use coon uh, against. A, a Korean woman. Yeah. Because I know you're not black if you're using that word for a Korean woman, first of all. I know you're not actually black. You you might be a POC as they used in the word. They said that this woman had betrayed another POC, which is another reason I know people, they aren't black. Because, like, black people don't get into the whole, like, everyone. Right. We're all POC now. No, we're still black. We're still black that's a distinct that's identity you don't get you don't get inward pass just because right. you're a poc that means nothing you know right. so i i, I absolutely really wild stuff from uh <laughs> from goddamn near attendant people you should call them all out just call them out hey i do have to say though her weirdos are disproportionately black she well, has they claim to some, be well uh, well i i the ones a few i've confirmed she seems to have like two eclectic and two weirdo uh, black uh, black Mr. Weeks, <laughs> yes, and eclectic. Yeah, she she got two of them. So I mean, that is just maybe three, maybe three when you talk about lobster and yeah, oh, lobster. and then you got um, smooth, uh, smooth, oh, smooth Lexen, smooth uh, Cobra. So he's got, smooth Cobra. She's no, got, he's like, white. He's white. He's married to a black man. Jeremy's Marcus. a gay, a gay no, white. Johnson. No, yeah. no, Marcus Johnson. Oh, oh, Smooth Cobra. Sorry, Cobra. I was thinking of Smart Flex. Yeah, Sorry. so actually, if you could have like a whole black man for Nera, like group, if you really wanted to. So Mr. Weeks. I, I got to give her points on that. 
Mixer Weeks is the best. I your point. Mr. Weeks was was buying uh, uh, mobile uh, yeah. billboards. <laughs> yeah, he drove around in a truck that said "fuck Bernie Sanders." But you know what? <laughs> this is why I'm so grateful to Horse Whisperer, who Jack Allison, friend of show, co-host of show, and co-host of Leslie Lee, helped expose because he is just a straight white man. Like you can't do a lot with that. <laughs> and he yes. is a near a, you know, a near a troll, a tandem troll. He defined Brianna Joy Gray as a um, white adjacent bro fodder. Uh, said all these economic justice issues are like the priorities of straight white heterosexual people. It's like, well, I guess you would know, Mister. Yeah. And he's like <laughs> an executive or something. He like does marketing for. Like oh like like military contractor like marketing like he like and like insurance company like all the worst people yeah. in the world uh, and Jack was able to dig down. Matt, I did want to give you props because I uh, I saw that the Democrats floated actually using one of your fake think tank ideas out wow. there with what was it a child? Um, oh yeah, kind of child oh, yeah allowance. Sorry, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, and then yeah. this is coming full circle actually. Brian Fredericks asked, could Matt co- comment on Romney and Biden's child benefit policies? That's what you're there talking go, about, right, Brian. Leslie? Yeah. Yeah, this gets, this. Get, yeah, I mean, I've been writing about this for like four or five years um, and trying to tee this up. Um, but I mean, the long story short is we have, we do actually have child benefits in the U.S., though people don't really realize it or think about it because of how weirdly it's designed and how hard it is to understand. But they are called the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. But the way that they're designed is if you're poor or even if you, you know, you maybe not totally poor, but you don't make enough income, you don't get the full benefit. So it's you really kind of got to be in like the top 70 percent of the income distribution to get these benefits. And this was an intentional thing they did in the 90s um, when they were cutting welfare because the idea was we need, to, we need to keep cash away from these poor single mothers. And so let's move it up the ladder and using these tax credits to do that. And so I've been saying for five, six years, uh, that's fucked up. <laughs> like We should just extend these down to everyone um, to make sure poor people get them as well. Um, and I had a whole scheme for like how we should do it. And um, it kind of took off and a lot of people you know, got on board. There were papers, uh, some of the other think tanks supporting an idea like that. And Eventually, Joe Biden, they, you know, they, con- they convinced him in, in one of his, I don't know, moments to sign a piece of paper saying he's for it, I guess. Uh, and uh, they're trying to get that into the uh, COVID relief bill. Uh, and the way that he's got it set up is um, you would get 300 a month per kid um, if they're below the age of six. Above that, you would get 250 a month. Um, but it's, it's, it's an advanced monthly refund of your child tax credit. It's actually kind of a clusterfuck in the way that he's designed it. Um, and that brings me to Brian's question, which is the, the, the Romney one. Romney then came out with a counter and I actually was able to interact with some of Romney's staff, uh, on that proposal. And Romney's proposal is actually slightly more generous than Biden's proposal, uh, believe it or not. Um, it's about uh, uh, you can get $350 a month instead of 300 a month. Um, so that's cool. Um, and you also get 1400 right before you uh, give birth, where, uh, whereas you don't get that uh, for Romney uh, or for uh, Biden's plan. But the thing that is interesting about Romney's plan is that he adopts my approach to administering the benefit. 
So instead of having the IRS pay out an advanced monthly version of an annual child tax credit, you just have the Social Security Administration send the check out to everyone. Um, super, super easy, very, very salient. The Social Security Administration already sends out benefits to 3.8 million kids every month. Uh, people don't know that. They think about it's only old people. It's not only old people. Kids get some Social Security if their parents die or they're disabled or something like that. Um, and so that's kind of, that's where we're at right now is basically me trying to convince everyone, if, whatever you think about Romney's proposal, at least use the way that he's designed it. Like that is the way that other countries do it. That's the best way to do it. Um, and I don't know, that's not, I've actually had a lot of success on that in the discourse, like Fox, Dylan Matthews at Vox wrote a whole piece that was basically like the Romney plan is better designed. And then the New York Times editorial board did the same thing. And, you know, so I've been started beating the bush on that. That's basically what I've been spending the last month on. Um, but they're probably going to go with the dumbass design, you know, at the end of the day. So. You can follow Matt Brunig on Twitter at Matt Brunig. That's B-R-U-E-N-I-G. And read more of his work with the People's Policy Project at peoplespolicyproject.org. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, and Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our intern is Maria Trujillo. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you on the next episode. <laughs>